uh, it's not uncommon for pastors to take the Sunday after Easter off. It's not uncommon. Um, because, man, man, there's just such a buildup. There's just such an emotional investment in, in getting ready for Easter Sunday and the resurrection and celebrating and, and, the, and the passion of Good Friday and then the quietness of Holy Saturday and then the joyful celebration of Easter Sunday. And by the way, the oven did come on at the appropriate time. Some of you asked this week, and one of you warned me this morning that I'd better close the loop on that. So sure enough, it did come on. Mike was saying as we were beginning worship this morning that, that some among the worship team and some among the congregation too are either right in the middle of some uh, unidentified respiratory malady or just getting over it or just coming into it. And it reminded me of something that that I've heard everybody, everybody in the room and everybody uh, who's watching online and everybody on the planet, we are either right now in a crisis, some crisis, personal or professional or emotional or relational crisis. We're either in a crisis or we're just coming out of a crisis or we're getting ready to head into another crisis, right? Where some of us are pre-crisis, like you could be pre-diabetic or, or pre-cancerous or, or, you know, <clears throat> you put whatever trouble is out there and if you're not in it, you're pre-trouble, right? And just because you're now post-trouble, guess what? The valley that you're heading into ends with another, another hill. This week... Right on, the, right on the heels of Resurrection Sunday, uh, many of us, many of you, on Monday and then again on Tuesday, attended and shared in the, in the sorrow and the grief and the loss of two families who have been a part of our congregation for years. Right on the heels of the celebration of the resurrection and life, he is risen. And uh, I was mentioned twice last Sunday, Jesus promised, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And we all said, yes, we believe this. And then Monday and then on Tuesday, our bold statement of belief was put to the test. Yes, we believe this. Uh, yesterday, I, I sent out an email to to the to the family the the prayer update email. If you did not receive an email yesterday asking for prayer for one of our sisters, Tess Arcy, it's because we we don't have your email address attached to that distribution list that we send out. So if you did not get an email yesterday, talk to Jody after church or talk to me or talk to Pastor Tim and make sure uh, if you want to get those emails, make sure you let us know that so that we can include you. Tess Arcy was taken to the emergency room Friday evening, was admitted at uh, Garnet Health Medical Center. Uh, we visited with her yesterday. She's waiting on results of an echocardiogram 
and waiting to be seen by a hematologist to determine if, in fact, she does have a blood clot or clots. We're not sure. She's not sure. She is in quite a bit of pain. And uh, this is still an unsolved mystery because she has not had a history of uh, this or any other kind of medical condition. So we've asked you to pray for Tess. Tess is one who is in crisis, as well as her husband Pablo and their daughter Hadassah. And so probably this week there will be an email going around uh, asking for anyone who might be willing to help in bringing in a meal for the Arces. They're in a crisis. And uh, I have a a thank you note that I've been asked to read this morning uh, from one of us who is was heading into a crisis, was in a crisis, and now is coming out of a crisis. Let me read this uh, note to you. My dear church family, I want to thank you all. I want to thank you all for your love and support during my recent health issues, from the laying on of hands to prayers, rides, meals, calls. I have felt the hand of God over me. You are and continue to be his servants. Sorry. You are and I should have read through this ahead of time. You, you are and continue to be his servants and my blessing. In love, Shirley Adams. I don't want you to think that Shirley's handwriting was causing me problems. Her handwriting is beautiful. We don't see this kind of penmanship anymore. (laughs) Anyway, Shirley wanted to express her appreciation to uh, all of you for the way that you have cared for her during the time that she was heading into a crisis, while she was in the crisis, and then even after she was coming out of it. And uh, beautiful illustrations now with the, the two families who've lost loved ones and, and Tess who's in the hospital and Shirley who testifies of how her family has supported her through this time of trial. And so this is not part of the sermon this morning. This is me just ad-libbing, but I want you to join with me for, for a moment of prayer this morning again, if you will. You are stronger than the depth of our pain and our need and our weakness and our feeling of helplessness and wondering if we are, in fact, hopeless. But we are not hopeless, and you have not left us without help, Father. I am thankful for the very many ways in which being a part of your family, and especially being a part of your family when we actually see our brothers and sisters on a regular basis and interact on Sundays for worship and through the week for, for uh, other ways in which we're involved together. I'm thankful for the way that being a part of your family is a way that your strength is manifested to us. I'm thankful for the many people who stepped in and stepped up to be present with the Whittle family and to be helpful, and to be present with the Ogden family and to be helpful. I'm thankful for the neighbor who stepped up to take Hadassah uh, while Tess is in the hospital and while Pablo is with his wife. They don't, either one of them, have any relatives close by. And I reassured her yesterday, Father, and I believe I spoke for all of us when I said, Tess, we are your family. 
And you can count on us the way you would count on your blood relatives. Help us to uh, put feet to that bold claim that I made on our behalf yesterday. I thank you for the many ways in which you have demonstrated your strength through so many here. And I pray, Father, that as we turn our thoughts now to what Jesus had to say to us in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as we are confronted yet again with uh, a two-by-four swinging right at our heads, I pray that we will not duck. Let it pass over us and hit somebody next to us. It's intended, it's intended to speak to me. And I will not try to avoid your word when it comes at me the way it is coming at me today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I guess I tipped you off to my intention this morning. I do not have a two by four. I have nothing. Just just the word of God, and that's all we need. Right? And... Uh, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. As a father, the son in whom he delights. So if, and I don't know, it it might just be me that's going to get some chastening this morning. It might just be me, but I know what I'm going to say, or I think I know what I'm going to say. And uh, I have an idea that some of you might feel like, huh, that was aimed right straight at me. But I promise you, I don't have any one of you in mind specifically. I'm preaching to the man in the mirror this morning. You're just getting to listen in. But I do want to begin with a quick review from two weeks ago. Because, wow, I was accidentally advancing pages after pages. Maybe the Holy Spirit wanted me to start at the end and spare you. Okay, from two weeks ago, because a lot has happened since two weeks ago uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus begins this, sec- this, actually this third section. The first group was what we call the Beatitudes, the statements of blessing, uh, which serve as the opening uh, introduction, which will then be unpacked over the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and then Jesus talks about that wonderful thing, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And then two weeks ago on Palm Sunday, uh, Jesus began to talk about the relationship of the Old Testament law to the current generation. And I want to review that very quickly. I'm just going to read through these verses without further commentary. Starting in verse 17 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so 
to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This uh, old hymn came to mind. I know that many of you will recognize it. Uh, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read the words. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The next verse in this famous hymn. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. I I can't do enough. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All of that for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. I think this is my favorite verse. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Yes, you know it. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. Foul. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. In the next six messages, we're going to look at six different ways in which Jesus applies the statement about unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Starting this morning, Jesus gives six illustrations and applications of this lesson. This series... Um, can, there we, here we are. This, each of these six, I, I guess for the lack of a better word, I'm going to call them case studies. Each of these six case studies begins with this expression. You have heard that it was said. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, and, and if, if you're like me, when you hear something like this, you, you've heard that it was said this, but I say to you, you're, you're kind of expecting to hear a, an opposite, right? The word but usually implies you're going this way, but now we're going to go this other way. But um, you and I and the, and the many other people who might have thought that, we would all be wrong. Jesus is not going to reverse the teaching of the law. 
He's going to take an auger bit and drill a hole and press it deeper. What Jesus has to say does not contradict the basic statement of the law. It nails it down tightly. And Jesus' illustrations, which we're going to look at beginning this morning, take us so much farther than just a simple form of obedience to a requirement. Here we go. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. How often have you heard someone make this statement? Or maybe you've even made it yourself or thought it yourself. When, when you are put in the position of having to defend yourself against some accusation of wrong, you make this defense, something along these lines. Well, at least I've never killed anybody. This is the kind of thing that we say when we're comparing ourselves on the moral scale to someone is, who is very much farther down toward the bottom of that scale. Used to be, uh, used to be the, name, the name that always came up when comparing yourself to someone on the moral scale, we would all judge ourselves against the standards set by somebody like Adolf Hitler. And there's, there's any number of names that could be lumped into that particular pool of humanity. When we, we also have um, over here on the, uh, on the far, on the extreme good end, we have people like, well, you, you put in any name you want to put in there. Um, most of us would say, well, Billy Graham belongs there, and uh, Mother Teresa belongs there, and there are probably a few others that you would say, and some would make some argument against, well, yeah, yeah, okay, blah, 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 blah. Doesn't matter. None of that matters. See, because... Uh, this is this scale of this moral scale that we weigh ourselves and measure ourselves against the people around us. That's a human construct. God ignores it. It doesn't matter that you're less wicked than that guy. You're still wicked. Well, at least I've never killed anybody. Okay. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Here's the, but I say to you part. You ready? You know what's coming. You probably know what's coming because it's not the first time you've ever heard this. I suspect. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh boy. That's not even fair. That's the standard. I can't even be angry with my brother. How many of you have a brother? I have three older brothers. I was the little brother. 
I was the one, I was the one, here, I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood. You got a minute? There, there was a time when uh, my, my dad had a hobby. He had a, a, a hobby of t- uh, tape recorders. Remember um, tapes and spools and even before cassettes, even before eight tracks, he had reel-to-reel tape recorders and wired microphones. And my brothers thought it would be really fun if the four of us formed a quartet and they would put me up as the front guy and they would be standing behind me as the backup vocalists. I was not yet five years old, but I knew a song from Sunday school. I knew a Sunday school song. They, they told me, we're, we're going to hit record and we're going to stand behind you. We're going to hit record and then you start to sing. And they were going to sing along with me, but I was going to be the lead vocalist. And so I was all excited. And I had that little microphone in my hand holding it up close to my mouth. And I took a deep breath and they hit record. And just as I was starting to sing, one of my brothers, I don't know which one, slugged me right in the middle of the back. Hard. And they recorded my crying. Yeah. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. I'm not yet five years old and I'm already condemned according to the law. Whoever insults his brother. My sister, I think my sister Debbie is watching online. They, they watch online most Sundays. So uh, Debbie will identify with this. We had a particular thing, a horrible thing that we said to each other. Uh, it was it was about the worst thing that we could say to each other without also getting slapped by mom or dad. It was it was this taunt. It went exactly like this: A B A B C. That was it. A B A B C. And when we did that to each other, we infuriated one another. What did we know? And instead of saying, you fool, the worst thing that we ever said to one another, the worst accusation that we could make to one another is, you're not even an Ashley, you're an Ashley. My sister is going to probably comment on Facebook at, at that moment. I'm not calling my sister an Ashley. I'm not even calling her ABABC this time. I do remember one time my mother being so angry, so angry at something that was going on in the family, she made this statement. I hate everyone whose last name is Ashley. You see... One way or another, we are all guilty. That's the point here. That's the point that Jesus is making. Don't just think that because you've never committed the the letter of the law, you've never violated the letter of the law, 
Don't think that that makes you innocent of the law. Because, bless you, Jesus said, if you've even thought it, you're guilty. Anybody here innocent? I'm not, I'm not trying to throw any shade on you. I told you, this message is challenging to the person I speak to in the mirror. Let's go to the next slide. This is how Jesus continues. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Notice the words that I've highlighted there in that bright lemon. These are the action words that Jesus says. If, if, you, want, if you want to make good what is broken, then here's how you begin. If you're, if you're coming to church... And you're coming in, you've dressed in your Sunday finery. You've gotten an extra cup of coffee because you want to be bright and alert. You stretched, limbered up the muscles so that you, you won't, you know, you'll be able to reach high. I'm getting ready to present myself before God in my best appearance, and I come into the presence of God thinking, he won't mind that I've had a conflict with a member of the church family. He won't mind that I've had some angry words, or that I said some unkind things about that person, or heard that that person said some unkind things about me in the last week. I'm ready to drop my tithe envelope in the offering box, and I remember, oh. I hear the voice of God saying in my, in my mind, don't come to me with this weak sauce. I don't think God would say that. But something like that. Hey, Dennis, who you... You think, you think you can come into my presence and we're fine when I know that you have some conflict going on with one of your brothers or one of your sisters? You think I don't care that my children are not in harmony and not in unity? You think I don't care about that? You think that I don't mind or that I don't notice that you have this quarrel going on? You are parents. Some of you, a lot of you are parents. How do you feel when you know your children are quarreling? You, you might have intervened. You might have sent them each to a separate corner or, a, or their own room. You might have intervened with some disciplinary measure, taken away a privilege, or whatever else you might, you might do in your administration of justice and discipline. But you are, not, you are not going to be happy if everybody comes to the dinner table together and they're giving those sidelong glances at each other, looking daggers across the table. You don't like that, right? Parents don't like that when they see that their children are mumbling and whispering curses at each other. 
secret things that parents don't notice or kids don't think kids think that their parents don't notice. Well, well God is the perfect parent. And he notices everything. And Jesus says, don't come to God thinking you can worship him and God will be pleased with you when you know you have something going on with a brother or sister, with a neighbor that, that is not right. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back. And be received with gladness into God's embrace. Do you understand the principle that Jesus is giving to us here? Here's another scene uh, in the next verse. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are still going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. It's even worse than coming to church with a wrong attitude. This is, you know, your, your freedom is at stake. Settle your differences promptly and privately. Don't force them to be mediated by a third party. Jesus says, if you don't get it right, truly I say to you, You will never get out of that prison cell until you have paid the last penny. One of of my mentors has said, learn to discipline yourself and then teach your children how to discipline themselves because if we don't discipline ourselves and if our children don't know how to discipline themselves, then ultimately society has to discipline us. And when society disciplines us, it's never gentle. And it's never with a view to correction and restoration, which is what God's discipline is about, which is what a parent's discipline is about. A discipline that is motivated by love has as its goal restoration. But society doesn't care about that. If society has to discipline me, it means I'll never get a second date. I might have a number of first dates, but if I haven't disciplined myself, I might never get that second date. If I haven't disciplined myself, I might not get the job I want. Or I might not keep the job I have. If I haven't learned to discipline myself, and society has to discipline me, I might not get a promotion that I really want. I might not remain in my marriage if I haven't disciplined myself. My marriage may fail. I may lose the privilege of driving a car. I might even lose my freedom if I have not disciplined myself and, I, and I've left it to society to have to discipline me. It's never gentle. Jesus says, learn, learn... Learn to discipline yourself so that you don't have to be disciplined by others. This application of the law goes deep. It highlights for us this truth. Obedience to God 
is not only outward, the way the Pharisees thought. If I can just do the right things and other people see me doing the right things, dressing in the right way, going where I'm supposed to go, not going where I'm not supposed to go, tithing even uh, to the spices, the dill and the cumin that my wife buys at the market, being very strict about my outward appearance to the law, but not just outwardly, but God is even more importantly interested in what is on my inside. Here's some additional examples in the scripture, what God has said to us about that. Starting back in 1 Samuel. I know that you're going to recognize this. This comes up a lot. This verse comes up a lot. God sent his, his uh, prophet Samuel to the village of Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, because God had told Samuel, the next king, the next king of Israel to replace Saul, who was a fail, failure, the next king is going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so uh, Samuel went to Jesse's home and he started to meet Jesse's sons. And God said to him, as he was looking over these young men and thinking, boy, there's some impressive boys here. The oldest, the, the, you know, these are some fine looking, tall, strong, fit, handsome. They'll look good in a crown. God said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Saul was the prototype of what a king should look like. Head and shoulders above everybody else. Tall, handsome, uh, charismatic. People were drawn to him, but he was a failure. I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees the inner person. He does not, as we say, judge the book by its cover. How many of us are guilty about um, sorting people as we see them, as we take in through our eyes information that we can gather about a person? And we have already sorted that person into whatever category our minds have created about that person. Before we've ever spoken a word, we've also already got an idea. And if the idea is a wrong idea, then we are forced to try to overcome our own disadvantage because we've sorted the person prematurely based on what they look like, based on their outward appearance. And God says, learn to be interested in what's on the inside of a person. And, and I'm telling you, it's way more interesting. We're, we're way more interesting when you get to know who we are on the inside than, than what we look like on the outside. I mean, there's very few variations, relatively speaking. There's very few variations of how different we are uh, by appearance. I mean, we have enough differences that we can recognize and distinguish one of you from another one of you. We can even learn to distinguish identical twins, given enough time. But what makes us really unique is what's on the inside of us. And that takes some time and effort to get to know, right? Here's some great advice from a wise father to what we have to conclude was a foolish son. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Solomon says to his son and, and then to everyone else's son and daughter at the same time, 
That's the miracle of the inspiration of Scripture. Keep your heart with all vil- vil- vigil. Vigilance. Vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Guard your heart. Protect your heart. For from it flow the springs of life. One translation says, From it come all the issues of life. Your heart. Protect it. Care for it. Guard it. Here's something that Jesus said directly to those who were trying so hard to look right on the outside, to give the outward impression of righteousness, to carry themselves with dignity. Meanwhile, they were neglecting to guard their hearts. Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's something that I um, tried to teach to my students at, uh, in Bible classes. Uh, you and I were like a sponge. We, we soak up whatever we're put in. You spill some water on the counter, you put a sponge on it, the, wa- the, the water will be absorbed into the sponge. You hold that sponge over the sink and you squeeze it. And what comes out? Water. But if I spill a half a gallon of grape Kool-Aid on the kitchen floor, hypothetically, (laughs) and I use one of the bath towels that were given to uh, a, a newly married groom and bride as a wedding gift, hypothetically, on the, on the pool, the half gallon pool of grape Kool-Aid, uh, and, then, and, and then use my foot to push the towel around in the classic manly mopping technique, <laughs> hypothetically. Uh, that traumatic experience might have been might have been the catalyst for that person's wife going into labor. (laughs) Hypothetically. If this story happened, it would have been back in September of 1984. (laughs) If it had actually happened. What goes in is what comes out when you're squeezed. If when you hit your hammer, no, if when you hit your thumb, if when you hit your hammer with the thumb, uh, what, what comes out when you're squeezed? What language comes out? In my home, in my home, those words were considered chimney words. The, the words that, that my father would utter when trying to assemble chimney pipe without being cut by the sharp edge or blackened by the soot within. And when the thing would collapse in his hands, the words that came out of his mouth, my mother called, those are the chimney words. Those words, if they came out, had to be in there. 
before they could come out. Right? So, um, when a young child startles the adult crowd around him by using a word that we don't expect to come out of a young child's mouth, we all immediately look around sheepishly wondering, which one of us did he hear say that? How did that get in there? Because it is from the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, isn't it? What's in the heart is what is going to come out, especially in the unguarded moment when we're under pressure, when we're squeezed. God examines our motives, not just our actions. I've been learning to examine my own motives. And the more I think about why I do the things I do and why I don't do the things that I don't do, and then sometimes why I do the things I don't want to do and why I don't do the things that I do want to do or know that I should want to do. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. I'm not going to go into all of that right now. But when you start to examine your own motives... It's a complicated thing. It becomes tricky to understand. Parents, have you ever asked your child, why did you do that thing? And if the child heard your question at all and thought about your question, uh, it is not uncommon for a child to just think for a moment, shrug their shoulders and mumble something like, I don't know. And the fact is, whatever that child had just done was not something that they had considered before they did it. They just did it. They just said it without thinking about the harm that they might be doing. I'm not even talking about children anymore, am I? We just do something. We just say something without thinking without considering, not realizing the harm that we might be doing. And if I have to work that hard to understand my own motives, how in the world am I going to be able to understand anybody else's motives? So what we do is we judge other people by their actions. But we judge ourselves by our intentions. Well, this is what I meant to do. I didn't mean to harm. And so I give myself forgiveness. I forgive myself for the harm that I caused others because I know that wasn't my intention. But because I can't, I barely know my own intentions, I can't possibly know yours, so I don't forgive you for your intentions. I only judge you by your actions, right? But for us, the trouble is, God does know our motives. He does know our intentions. This is what he says in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He understands my motives even when I don't. He knows.
knows my intentions. And also the actions that my intentions produce. And then this verse that follows right after verse 12 really brings me up short. Since God is able to judge and discern my thoughts and intentions, he says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees my thoughts and intentions, and even when my thoughts don't produce harmful actions, I'm still responsible for my thoughts. And God holds me accountable for my intentions and my actions. Let's look at uh, two passages in 1 John 3. 1 John 3 and then in 1 John 4. 1 John 3, verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. That word murdered there, I've got it highlighted in that bright lemon. Uh, this, this word in English is, is not uncommon. It's not unknown to us. But the... The word that it represents, the a word in the Greek language that John, that John chose, is a, a, a rather uncommon word. It's an it's an ugly word. It's it's ugly to say. It's ugly to hear. Sfadzo, sfadzo. That's a that's an unpleasant sounding word, isn't it? Sfadzo. It sounds ugly because it is ugly. This word in the Greek language is most commonly used to describe the slaughtering of an animal. Often as a part of a worship ritual. It's what the priests would do when they cut the throat of the goat and spread its blood, splattered its blood across the altar. Sfadzo. Almost as if Cain, in his jealous fit of anger, because God was pleased with the sacrifice that Abel brought, but he was not pleased with the sacrifice that Cain brought. It's almost as if Cain said to God, Oh, you want a blood sacrifice? Here's this one. That's ugly, isn't it? Do not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and slaughtered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In the way that Cain hated Abel. John goes on, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Whoever hates his brother or sister, sfadzo. 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The next chapter over in 1 John, John continues this thought, verse 20 of chapter 4. If anyone says, oh, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Brother can quite literally mean biological brother, the, the sibling that you have grown up with in your home, that you've fought with, that you've wrestled with, that you've teased, that you've called names, that you've made fun of, but who also you've defended when somebody else picked on them. But I think in the context, in the greater context of what John is writing to my, my little children, my dear children, my, um, my people who have come to know Jesus Christ, you are my brothers and my sisters. If anyone says, I love God, but I don't love my church mate, we're lying. Verse 21, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I would like to emphasize two words. Commandment. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. The other word I want to emphasize is must. This is not a suggestion. This is not a request. It's not just a good idea. It's what God requires in his children. You parents, you have a household that you are responsible for, and you have some ground rules that you have established. In my house growing up, one of the ground rules was among the four brothers, you must have a shirt on when you come to the dinner table. It was a rule. It was a ground rule. Mom and dad established it. If we, if we were playing outside, it was a hot summer day, we had our shirts off, you had to put a shirt on when you came in for dinner. My brother, my oldest brother, Dan, he had a loophole. He had a vest. It was like a fake fur vest. And, 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 and he would put that on to come to dinner, to sit down at the dinner table and... It was allowed. Parents, parents allowed it. It was grandfathered in. Some, some strange clause. <laughs> this is one of God's family rules. Don't come to my table if you're not loving one another. Because if you're hating one another, if you're angry with one another, you're killing You're killing, you're murdering in your heart, you're murdering. Don't bring that into my presence, God says. If you love me, 
love your brother. You think today was hard? Next, next Sunday we're going to keep going. Look ahead if you want to, if you dare. Let's pray. Uh, thank you, Father, for the clear word that you've given to us this morning. Just because I've never killed anybody with a rock or a gun or a knife or a car, I've been guilty many, many, many times being angry thinking and saying things against my brothers and sisters. Forgive me for that. Help me. Help me uh, in my inner man. Help me to be the sponge that soaks up your love so that when I am squeezed, it is your love that seeps out. Help all of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of things occurred to me while I was sitting out there. Uh, one would be that the Draperies and dead black trees are not a metaphor for anything. They are the set pieces for the upcoming Beauty and the Beast performance by Harmony Christian School this next weekend. Awesome. And uh, the other thing that occurred to me is maybe they are a metaphor for something, which would be my uh, thoughts, feelings, attitudes towards my brothers and sisters who don't think, act, believe, sin the same way I do. So, yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to see some fruit growing on those trees in my heart. I told you, like, how excited I was about this Sermon on the Mount series when you told me about it. And, like, yeah, that's courageous. And I don't know that I'm as excited about it anymore because I'm, like, really, like, every week it's, like, here's, here's who you are and here's who you ought to be. And... From the mouth of the guy. <laughs> so I hope you're challenged and I hope you come back next week from take more to take more lumps and uh, from the Lord himself. And uh, man, we're going to sing a song that that makes it all OK, <laughs> because I'm going to screw up. You're going to screw up. But his grace is amazing. And he saved a wretch like you and like me. So stand with us and let's sing.
like to pronounce a benediction, a good word over us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, turn his face toward you and give you peace.